Welcome to Reading Genesis. My name is Stephen Longclaw. I'm a priest serving in the Anglican Church in North America and also a United States Navy chaplain. Join me as we discover the sacramental and enchanted world of the Bible through Reading Genesis together. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for gathering us together to study your word. We pray you would bless us tonight as we examine Genesis 22. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac. Spoilers, Isaac is not actually sacrificed, but uh, we, do see, we do see it play out. Um, last time we saw that Isaac, the promised son, was finally born. Genesis 21, if you remember Abraham back when he was called Abram, back in Genesis 12, was called out of his people, Ur of the Chaldeans, and he was about 75 years old when God told him to go to a land that I will show you. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and through you all nations of the earth shall be blessed. That is an important promise, especially that last part. Through you all nations of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham has been waiting for this promised son because Abraham didn't have any children. So if he's going to bless all the nations, he's got to have kids. Abraham has been waiting for this child of promise for 24 years. I think he was 99 years old or 100 years old when he finally had the child. So it's now a few years later. The text doesn't tell us how many years later, uh, but it is uh, several years later. Isaac has been born. If you remember last time we studied uh, Ishmael and Hagar. Ishmael is Abraham's other son through the concubine Hagar. Uh, they have been sent away and God's going to take care of Hagar and Ishmael. So now we have Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and all of their servants. And God tells Abraham to do something that sounds kind of crazy. Tonight. So let's jump into it in Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Let's pause. So there's a couple of things here already. Isaac is called Abraham's only son. Verse 2, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Is Isaac indeed Abraham's only son? No. No. Who's the other son? Ishmael. Ishmael. So why does the Bible tell us that Isaac is Abraham's only son? Oh, wow, we found one of those many mistakes that all our atheist friends point to in the Bible. I guess we can't trust it. Let's throw the whole thing out. No, of course that is not the answer. There is a reason that it is called that uh, Isaac is called Abraham's only son. Uh, and it is because <laughs> we're going to get more into this at the end. It's because this story is looking forward, uh, or rather this story is a type of the story of Jesus. So a type is something as an Old Testament truth that points forward to a New Testament reality. Okay, so for example, Joshua, the great conqueror who brings the people into the land uh, in the book of Joshua, is a type of Jesus Christ. They even share the same name. Uh, Jesus is actually the name Yeshua, Joshua. 
So uh, Joshua, where Joshua sets his people, or, or where Joshua brings people into the land, Jesus ushers us spiritually into the promised land. Uh, Moses is a type of Jesus as well. Whereas Moses uh, ushers the people through the Exodus out of uh, slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, uh, they pass through the water of the Red Sea and are constituted as a new people of God in the book of Exodus. Jesus does the same for us. He sets us free from the slavery of sin, death, and the devil. We pass through the waters of baptism and are constituted as the church, his, his body. So you have types in the Old Testament. The fulfillment of that is the uh, anti-type. Not anti as in anti, A-N-T-I, like I'm against the type, but anti as in A-N-T-E, anti-type. Um, so Jesus is the fulfillment of this story right here. And we'll talk more about how he fulfills this story uh, at the end of the lesson. So Jesus is the only son of God. So Isaac is the only son of Abraham. He's theologically the only son of Abraham. And he is the only son of the promise. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. One more thing before we continue on to verse 3. We read that God tested Abraham. Now that is not the same as tempting. Some people will mistakenly say that God tempts us, meaning he tempts us toward doing sinful things. That is not true. We know from our New Testament witness, I believe it's the epistle of James. James says, God tempts no one. God does not tempt us to sin. He does test us, right? He, he, he will call us sometimes to do something. And that's our opportunity to rise to the occasion, right? But what he never does call us to do is something sinful or evil, right? So it's not a temptation. The devil tempts us. His demons tempt us. We tempt ourselves, but God does not tempt. God does test them to help us grow in holiness. Verse three, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and two took and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. We'll pause there. So the place where they're headed is about 45 miles from where they're living. <laughs> 45 miles is quite a lot. Uh, it's quite a journey at this time in history. Of course, they didn't have highways. They didn't have cars. Uh, that you, you couldn't call an Uber and and have to and get you to drive across town or whatever. Uh, this is this is quite a journey for them. So it takes a few days to go. And there's there's four people. There's Abraham, his two servants, and Isaac. Four people all together, and the donkey. We're not going to count the donkey though. So four people all all together, and it takes them three days to make this journey. Now three days. Numbers are important in the Bible, especially your biblical numbers. I guess if any number shows up in the Bible, <laughs> it is appropriately a biblical number because it's in the Bible. But I mean, your, your theologically significant numbers like 3, 6, 7, 8, 12, 40. All these numbers are, are very important. So when we see these numbers, we ought to ask, oh, what's going on here? So the significance of the number three, we've seen the number three, uh, or we do see the number three in other places. The uh, biggest three that we see three days is Christ himself being resurrected, right? Jesus dies. Three days later, he is resurrected on Sunday. 
We also see the number three is a time of preparation in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 19, the Israelites were called to uh, purify themselves because in three days, God was going to uh, call, call them up to, to go get the law. And they end up sending, sending Moses. So that's significant. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both of them went together. Let's pause. We see a couple of things. First, in verse 5, we see that Abraham promises, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So Abraham is telling them, both me and Isaac are going to return. Now, Abraham knows he's about to kill his son. He's about to sacrifice his son in the whole burnt offering. Does Abraham think, or is Abraham lying? Let me put it that way. Is Abraham just telling them something so that they won't... <laughs> put yourself in Abraham's position. Me and the boy are going to go back, and I will come back when I'm done. And they're going to say, well, what about Isaac? Well, he's not coming back. Or... Does Abraham really believe that Isaac is going to come back? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you. In Hebrews chapter 11, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We can sort of see what's going on in Abraham's mind because of what's happening in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is oftentimes referred to as the great, uh, great hall of faith or the great chapter of faith. And it walks through many Old Testament saints. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 8, let me read the story of Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. We already covered that in Genesis chapter 12. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of the promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and from him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And jump down to verse 17. We're going to pick up Abraham's story again. Uh, in Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, here we are, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham believes that God is a God of his promises. And he also knows that God has told him to do this very strange thing, which is to take his son, his only son, and offering him as a whole burnt offering to God. So how does Abraham square this in his mind? We're told in Hebrews 11. Abraham square this, squares this in his mind because he knows God is a God of resurrection. Abraham believes that he is going to kill his son, and then God is going to bring him back from the dead. Because he knows Isaac is the promised one. Through Isaac, the seed will come. Who's the, who's the forward-looking seed that we're all hoping for? 
The one promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. The one that will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus Christ himself. Abraham knows this has to happen, so he knows Isaac somehow walks away from this event with life in his lungs, with breath in his lungs and blood in his veins. Abraham believes it's going to be through resurrection. So jumping back to Genesis chapter 22. This is why Abraham looks at his two servants and says, we shall come back. Abraham doesn't have all the answers. Abraham doesn't have all the holes filled in for him. He's got some gaps. This is why Abraham is praised for his faith. He believes in God's promises, and he doesn't know how God's going to fulfill his promises, but he follows him anyway because he knows God is good, and God's going to bring about his purposes. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so he went both of them together. Isaac, then, we're not told how old Isaac is, but he's old enough to carry the wood of the burnt offering on his back. That suggests that he's not a child, right? He's not, he's not, a, he's not an infant. He's not a five-year-old. He's a little older. He's, he's strong enough to carry something quite heavy on his back and march up a mountain with this thing, right? It suggests that he might possibly even be in his teenage years. Okay, so Isaac is a is a young man or a, a, an older lad, maybe we could say, who's got some strength in him. Abraham is a hundred. Well, he was a hundred when Isaac was born, so he's even older now, maybe 110, 115, eh, probably 115, something like that. So keep that in mind, because we'll see that Isaac is actually completely complicit in this thing. This is, a, uh, this is a young teenager who could easily overpower his 100-plus-year-old father, and he doesn't as he's going through this. So, so Isaac himself has some faith as well. Verse 7, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Verse 9, When they came to the place of which Abraham had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So that's what I just, just pointed out. Notice Isaac is not fighting back. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, Yahweh will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of Yahweh, it shall be provided. Let's pause there. Many scholars believe because of the, the name that Abraham called it, Yahweh will provide, that this is actually Mount Moriah. That can't be proved beyond a shadow of a doubt, but it's plausible that this is Mount Moriah. Why is that interesting? Because Mount Moriah is where Jerusalem will later be built. And Christ himself dies 
on a mountain or on a hill right outside Jerusalem. So a lot of scholars believe where Abraham is offering Isaac here is the place where 4,000 years later, 2,000 years later, excuse me, 4,000 years would be us. 2,000 years later, Christ himself is gonna, is gonna offer himself as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world. Verse 15, and the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Let's pause. Who is this angel of the Lord? This angel of Yahweh. <laughs> Logan knows. Jesus, or a pre-incarnate Jesus. We've seen this angel or this messenger of Yahweh pop up several times already. We're only in 22 chapters into the Bible, and my goodness, it seems like we see him every other study popping up, appearing to people, right? So this is this pre-incarnate Christ figure. This is the second person of the Trinity talking to Abraham, and he swears by himself. By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. That's how we know it's this is Jesus. He is not saying God will surely bless you. Rather, he's saying I, the angel saying, I am the one who's going to bless you. So that's how we know this is Yahweh, or the messenger of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So let's pause there and go back and reread verse 17. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Not your offspring shall possess the gates of their enemies. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Singular. So this promise is, yes, pointing forward to the many children that Abraham is going to have through the promised seed Isaac. It's pointing forward to the 12 tribes that are going to come from Abraham. It's pointing forward to the people of Israel, as they will be named uh, later. But it's also pointing forward to a singular person, the singular person who will possess the gates of his enemies. That, of course, is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, we've already talked about. That's who this promise is talking about. Your, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and your offspring shall all through... Wait, I messed that up. And in your offspring, excuse me, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That's a fulfillment of the promise given in Genesis chapter 12. Verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Exactly like Abraham had told them, we shall return. Both me and my son shall return. It didn't happen the way Abraham thought it would, but God worked it out anyway because God is a God of his promises. We'll go ahead and finish off the chapter and then we'll return to some of the Christ themes in here. Verse 20, Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kimuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Chazo, Pildash, Jildath, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Who is Rebekah? Isaac's wife. Isaac's wife, yes. Yes, that's the woman who will marry Isaac. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. 
Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Remua, bore Teba, Geham, Tahash, and Maaka. All right. And then we come to the end of the chapter. We're not going to move into chapter 23, but oftentimes the way Genesis will structure its breaks is they'll have like a genealogy or a partial genealogy like you have here. So that, that sort of means this is the end of a section. The next part begins a new section, Genesis, which will start next week with chapter 23. So we're not going to jump into that this week. So back to Genesis 22. Let's, let's, let's bring out some of the Christ themes in here. You know, We see a father offering his son to death. A whole burnt offering, interestingly enough. We see this son is offered on a mountain. We see this son bears the wood of the offering on his back. There's a lot of Christ themes, isn't there? This is, this is pointing forward to Jesus, who is going to die on a mountain, bearing his wood for the sacrifice on his back, the cross as he carries that up the mountain and is crucified for the sins of the world. We do see some differences, of course. Obviously, Isaac is not killed. Isaac is not, uh, I, nor would, if Isaac were killed, would he die for the sins of anyone else, right? Uh, but uh, when Jesus does die, he does die for the sins of the entire world. We see here also in Genesis chapter 22, that a substitute is killed instead of Isaac. Some, some church fathers like to point out that both Isaac is pointing forward to Jesus and this ram that's caught in the thickets by its horns is also pointing to Jesus because he dies in the place of Isaac, a uh, substitutionary atonement, uh, or a substitutionary death, I should say. Uh, that's what we see with uh, Christ as well. Um, he dies so that we who are united, he, he dies defeating sin and death so that we who are united to him have sin and death defeated with us. We share in the victory of his death. Because of all this, Abraham is greatly blessed. Abraham is promised that everything that God has promised shall come to pass. Abraham has proved faithful in all of this. And of course, we already talked about how the great promise given is that the offspring singular, singular person will possess the gates of his enemies. That is, Jesus is going to kick in the gates of death and defeat death from the inside for us. We had already, <laughs> we already mentioned a little bit at our dinner what death is. Death is the ripping apart of the soul from the body. Uh, Jesus defeats death for everyone. We still die. Our bodies will still be ripped apart from our souls and we'll stop breathing. Our hearts will stop. But we shall get our bodies back at the resurrection, right? 2.0, a renewed body. We shall get these bodies back and they will be very much like Jesus' own body. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. But if you, if you read the gospel stories, it's interesting. People don't quite recognize Jesus when they first see him. So it's Jesus... It's the one who they know and love, but they don't quite recognize him. The question is, well, why is God shielding their eyes to, so that they can't recognize him? Partially. I think that's partially true. But I also think there's something different about him physically that people just don't recognize him immediately. They don't recognize him at first. I think that's similar to how we shall be in the resurrection. 
Our bodies will be the same bodies we have now, but renewed. And because of that, they're going to act a little bit differently and, and function a little bit differently and look a little bit differently. Perhaps like Jesus's body, they'll be able to appear in the midst of people. Uh, they'll be able to pass through walls and doors and things like that. Um, so they're going to be quite amazing bodies, but they'll still be human. We will be fully glorified humans the way that we were always meant to be. No longer wearing the corruption that is in these bodies that we carry with us right now, or that, that are part of us right now, but they will be fully renewed. Why? Why do we get our bodies back? Because a human is both a body-soul creature, both body and soul. We are not a soul entrapped in a body. That's what Eastern philosophy thinks. That's what Eastern religions teach, that the best thing you can do is shed the body so that your soul can be freed to achieve, you know, some nirvana or to achieve some high intellectual capacity or achieve some high spirituality or something. That's not the teaching of Christianity. The teaching of Christianity is your body's a good thing. When God created Adam with a full body, guess what? He said, that's good. That is good. The human body is a good thing. It is now corrupted because of sin and death. But it will be reformed, remade, and renewed. And we shall get these bodies back on the last day. That is true for all, Christians and non-Christians. Because Christ defeats death. And when he defeats death, he defeats death for all. Everyone is going to get a resurrected body at the end of the day. That's when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Then what happens is the final judgment. So those who are resurrected, everyone will be resurrected, some unto eternal life, and we shall live in the new heavens and new earth with him. Those are those Christians who, us in this room, who are united to Christ by faith and by baptism. Others will be resurrected, but unto death. They shall go to the, what Paul calls the second death. We talked a little bit about <laughs> dinner, what, what that second death may mean and some different possibilities of what that may mean, which I'm not going to go into now, but... Yeah, so, not, so just because a person is resurrected at the end of time doesn't mean that they are resurrected unto life. Only the Christians are resurrected unto life. Those who are in Christ are resurrected unto life. And as I was explaining, uh, th those who, I mean, Abraham, Isaac, you know, pre-Christians, those who lived before Christ, they're looking forward to the promise. And so they're included in that resurrection unto life and eternity in the new heavens and the new earth with Christ. All this is because of Christ's great defeat of sin, death, and the devil for you. So with that, let's stop. Are there any questions? Any final thoughts? Anything that you got? Why do you think Jesus brought it to that point where they actually had to have Isaac down there and the dad with the knife ready to stab him? I mean, that would give him psychological problems for life. He'd need a counselor forever. So. <laughs> Yes, so you're I, true. I remember and when, in the student Bible I had, there was a picture there with Abraham with the night. I never got over it. Yeah, I yes. never got over it. So I laugh, not because it's a foolish question. It's a very good question. I laugh because Isaac turns out to be an odd character, which we'll learn more about as we get into his life. Perhaps you are exactly right. Perhaps this does, you know psychologically do some things to Isaac, he ends up himself not being a very good father to his kids. 
he has his own little issues along the way. There are some people who, when they read the story of Isaac, they think he's a faithless man. They think he kind of walks away from God for a while. Uh, of course, he comes back to God. And if, if he does walk away from God for a while, he does come back to God in the end. He, so he turns out to be faithful at the end. But, but Isaac is an odd one. He is the son of the promise, and he is the son through whom the covenant is passed. But yeah, I, th- I, think, I think you're right. It could be that this uh, had some, some long-term moral injury to Isaac. This Bible, um, there's like some explanations and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, what does it say? And uh, it said, uh, Abraham must blindly follow God's orders. Too many times he has adopted God. These times he, he determines to obey no matter what. It has taken more than a hundred years, but Abraham has finally learned to trust God. That's a great lesson. Yeah. That he's been doubting so much. Yeah. So, so, so we we we've talked about how how in, in the past Abraham has made Abraham is learning how to trust God, right? We we've we looked at the Abimelech story, the story of him in Egypt with him saying, you know, Sarah's my sister and all that, which is not a lie, but but it seems like he's growing in his faith. So he's been walking with Yahweh for twenty five plus years now, pro- probably closer to thirty five if we think Isaac's. A little older, maybe 35, 40 years. He's, he's, he's been walking with Yahweh, learning Yahweh, learning to trust Yahweh. Notice God doesn't tell Abraham to do this on day two of God calling Abraham out, right? This is not something that God tells Abraham to do when he's a, a quote, a baby Christian, if we want to use that term anachronistically. This is a man who has been walking with, with Yahweh for a long time who has a, a, a long track record of learning to trust in God and growing in his faith. And as a mature man now in the faith is being called to do this very hard thing. And like, like your, the notes in your Bible say, I think, I think they're absolutely right. He's made some blunders in the past, but now he is fully trusting God, even though he doesn't have all the answers. And that's a wonderful testimony to us. So with all that said, if we stop there and don't think about all of the Christological implications of this chapter, we're left with kind of a crazy story that is just bizarre and weird. A lot of modern progressive theologians read it exactly that way. They read it as, look at this, look at this story of child abuse in the Bible. All right? That is not what this story is. This story is recorded for us because... We are supposed to see all the Christological, all the Jesus implications in this story. We are to see uh, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. That Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the one who carries the wood on his back. Jesus is the son, the only son, the only begotten son of God, full of grace and truth. And even, I neglected to mention it, but even like Abraham has a son named Ishmael, Isaac is still called the only son. You know, Jesus is called the only son, the one and only begotten son of God, even though God has other sons, if we want to say that. Angels, right? We've seen before how how the Bible does refer to the angelic spirits as sons of God. You know, they are a created order. God created the angels. Jesus is not created, right? He is fully 100% Yahweh, the second person of the Trinity. He is not, he is not created by God, Uh, he shares in the full divinity of God. But yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's important that, that he, is, he is the unique, unique son of God in that way and that he is fully, fully Yahweh, whereas the angels are not. 
similar with Isaac, he's the unique son of Abraham in that the, the promise passes to Isaac and not to Ishmael. <laughs> and when you think about it, even Abraham, I mean, like, because Jesus is going to be indirectly killed by someone you trust, and it's the same thing, Abraham, is Isaac trusts his dad, you know? Yeah, that's. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair point. There's, there's lots of parallels that we can draw. The relationship of two person of trust to show exactly, you know, Jesus and the people he trusted would be trusted. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but Jesus is is he chooses to be the victim. Yeah. So you know when when yes he, he was betrayed but by he his. Knew that was gonna happen, that's right. He absolutely knew, and and he and and he was betrayed with a kiss from his disciple and friend Judas Iscariot, um, and Judas. Is is held liable for that? Yes, but so yeah, but G Jesus knew all this was going to happen. He came to Earth to be a victim, but he's a willing victim, right? At, at any time, he could call down angels and he could call down all kinds of. I mean, he's the God of the universe. He could stop his death at any time, and he chooses not to. He is willingly dying on the cross. That's why uh, one of the things I love about the Gospel of John is John really portrays Jesus as being enthroned as the King. On the cross. I mean, he's giving orders from the cross. Like, no one puts Jesus on the cross against his will. <laughs> Jesus chooses to go to the cross. And he's actually, you know, telling people what to do as a king on the cross. You know, John, you're going to take care of my mom. You're going to do this. You're going to do all this stuff. And it's like he's issuing orders from the cross as a king does from his throne. You know, so he's, he's choosing there. He, he puts himself on that cross through the circumstances that are around him, but he's the willing victim. He's the willing victim. Why did the garden of Gethsemane didn't say, if, this, if it's possible, please take this cup away from me or something like that? What's that for? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, in the garden of the Gethsemane, he does have a... A, um, a moment of, of uh, apprehension, maybe. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. A, a moment of apprehension. And, and, and it's because while he's fully God, he's also f fully human. And, um, and, and, and those, are, those exist together. So it's not like... Some people will tell you, well, sometimes he's acting in his humanity and other times he's acting in his divinity. That's not how it is. He's fully God and man and is in one singular person, right? Uh, but as a full human being, he knows that this is going to be quite painful. And he knows that it's going to be excruciating, literally excruciating. The, 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 the center of the word excruciating is the word crucis. So the Romans who created crucifixion had to create a new word to describe the pain that a person would go through in crucifixion. And they created the word excruciating. That word didn't exist before crucifixion. The, 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 the highest pain that you could describe crucifixion wasn't good enough to explain crucifixion. so bad they had to create a new word to, to describe the pain that a person goes through in crucifixion, right? So excruciating. And Jesus knew that he was about to go through this excruciating torment. And so he prays to his father, Lord, if there is any other way that we can redeem the world without me having to go through this torment, let's do it that other way. However, I am fully submitted to your will. My, my, my will is fully in line with yours. And, and if there is no other way, let's do it. And I'm willing to go all the way and see it, and see it done to the end. Because I love humanity that much. These are great questions. Great questions. Anything else before we close? Final thoughts? All right, let's pray then. Lord, we thank you so much for this wonderful time to come together, study your word, to think through all the implications of Abraham's, uh, 
offering Isaac a sacrifice and what that means for Christ being the willing victim and sacrifice that we might be saved. Lord, we pray that you would guide us into all truth and righteousness this week. We pray that you would strengthen us to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. All this we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining me in Reading Genesis. If you'd like to contact me, I'm available at reading.genesis.podcast at gmail.com. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen.